I think it is important for people to realize that, you know, even a well-qualified person, hopefully like myself, working on a niche site or, you know, an internet marketing project in general runs into issues. Like there are always issues that pop up. There's a lot of things that are outside of our control. So yeah, I'm happy to dig in. You just heard me talking. That was an interview with my friend Dom Wells from Human Proof Designs, the blog, and the Human Proof podcast. And a while back, Dom interviewed me because I sold a site with a partner of mine for $235,000. And in this episode, we go deep into all the issues that we ran into. Dom does a really good job introducing that concept, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Uh, let him sort of introduce everything. Before I send it over to the interview, I will be answering some questions at the end as normal. And one thing I'll point out, and I'll probably point it out a couple of times, is I covered this in a, I think, 12 or 13 part blog series called Project Go White Hat on Niche Site Project. And I got a lot of questions um, throughout that time period through all those blog posts that I that I published. So I'm going to answer a few questions from there that you may have as well. I'll put a link in the notes for Project Go White Hat, the blog series, so you could check that out. And you know what? I'll just send it over to Dom right now to get started with the interview. Doug had a project where he partnered up with somebody and they had a gray hat site that was doing very well. It was making a lot of money, but the link profile was gray hats. So that means they used some web 2.0s, some PBNs, and they wanted to make it white hat. So guest posting and other legitimate links like that so that they would get a higher earnings multiple when they sold the site sometime in the future. And as usual, Doug's got a ton of insights, some really good tips. But what is interesting about this episode is that we're not actually going to talk about all the great things that happened. We're actually going to talk about all the issues that happened and all the things that Doug and his partner had to overcome when they were actually doing this site. It's something that there aren't a lot of people talking about because you know we all like to focus on the great things that have happened, like, oh, how I increased this or how I did that. And what we've done is create another two-part series where in this first episode that we're on now, Doug's just going to give the overview and he's going to talk about some of the issues that he had to overcome. And then in the next episode, we're going to spend a lot longer diving into all of those things and talking about what Doug actually did. So give this first episode a listen and then wait for the next episode I'm recording this introduction after we've already recorded the episodes, so I know that there's an immense amount of value in there. Hey, it's Doug. I just wanted to hop in and say that was the intro portion, and now we're heading over to the interview. As we'll soon find out, you've just sold a site for a lot of money, and whereas it could be very easy for us to just focus on how great that is and everything that you did to get that, what you've suggested is we focus on the actual issues that you encountered along the way. And that's a fantastic idea because I just know that there are so many people out there that have these issues and no one really talks about it in the kind of blogosphere. Right, yeah. And you know, now that you mentioned it out loud, it sounds funny that I want to talk about my issues, but I think it is important 
for people to realize that, you know, even a well-qualified person, hopefully like myself, working on a niche site or, you know, an internet marketing project in general runs into issues. Like there are always issues that pop up. There's a lot of things that are outside of our control. So yeah, I'm happy to dig into some of the problems that I ran into with uh, selling this site. Why do you think it is that maybe people aren't talking about their issues as much like, you know, the so-called experts like us, basically? I think we're probably embarrassed a little bit. We don't want to, you know, air the dirty laundry and let people see that we made mistakes and it puts us in a vulnerable spot where, you know, perhaps, you know, we think people could use it against us. But I think I'm finding a little bit that people appreciate the realism and the authenticity of, you know, sharing the real story behind what's happening. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well there. It's definitely embarrassing. Like I, I'm doing an over the shoulder case study in my membership right now. And it just feels like every week I'm psyching myself up to say, yeah, yeah, this thing didn't work. Um, I'm going to try something else. (laughs) And I know that, you know, maybe 10 weeks from now, or I don't know, at some point I'll be sharing the successes, but I just feel like I need to keep saying, this is fine, guys. <laughs> like, Don't worry. I'm not useless. So yeah, maybe we put pressure on ourselves as well not to reveal all of the the kind of failures along the way. Right. And I think like since not that many people talk about those mistakes, less people write about it in general because it's not a common thing and they don't want to be the outlier. But apparently <laughs> I'm bringing that to myself and I'm happy <laughs> I'm happy to get that out there because I think it is really important, you know, from the beginner's mindset of like running into issues, like you'll run into so many issues along the way. And surprisingly, that doesn't go away. Your issues just change to be bigger most of the time and sometimes a little more complex. Yeah, that's very true. And I think until you've had your first success, you don't really know what to do about these issues. So when I build a site now and I'm having issues, I'm thinking, okay, well, yeah, this is what happens. Or like if a site isn't ranking or if progress seems slow, I just kind of go back to my previous sites in my memory and I just think, okay, yeah, this is normal. This is what happens. But for all those beginners out there that haven't got that, they need podcast episodes like this for reference so that they can say to themselves, oh, actually what I'm doing is fine because Doug had those issues too, and then they'll keep soldiering on. Absolutely. Okay, so when it comes to issues, what do you think is a good starting point for your story? So, well, I'll sort of lay the groundwork a little bit too, just to give people the context. So I was working on what I called Project Go White Hat, and essentially this was a niche site that a friend of mine created. And along the way, we figured out that he wanted to sell it and that he figured that it would probably sell better if it was white hat based versus a gray hat based. So he built the site using Web 2.0s and PBN backlinks. And it was starting to make a lot of money. Like I said, since he wanted to sell it, he wanted to get the highest multiple possible. And to do that, he needed to convert over to white hat. 
now it turns out I actually had the skills to, you know, work on a big project, number one. And number two, I knew how to do guest posting. I was actually running guest posting service for a little while. So I had a lot of experience and I, I mean, I could do a good job at it. So we partnered up on this site uh, last August. So that's 2016. So almost a year ago, we started working together on it. And right away, right when we started working on it, he let me know in a Skype chat. He said, hey, got some bad news. We're getting negative SEO on the site. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that wasn't great. And, you know, if people are unfamiliar, negative SEO typically is when, you know, a competitor or or someone will start sending a bunch of spammy looking links to your site. Usually it's like over optimized anchor text and they'll use some sort of automated software. Typically that will throw up a red flag. Google will see that and you'll get like a message in your search console that says, you know, unnatural links or something like that. And, you know, obviously it's a bad thing. You have very little control over it. Yeah. So essentially they're trying to make it look like you've tried to do some link building to your site and you're bad at it. And they're trying to get you a, like a penguin or a manual penalty. Exactly. So did anything happen? Did you lose any rankings or anything? So we didn't lose any rankings that we know of. And immediately my partner, Rob, who if anyone reads Niche Site Project, they'll know Rob a little bit. So Rob let me know that this was happening. And, you know, the normal course of action is to, you know, record those links and disavow them in the search console. And it's a bit of a tedious process and it's not fun, right? So you're copying lists and submitting lists of bad backlinks, but it is something that you can work around. So, you know, Rob took up that portion of it and for several weeks he was, you know, monitoring the backlinks and then disavowing the ones that were bad and had, you know, over-optimized anchor text. Okay, cool. So yeah, that could have been pretty, pretty bad. If Google had not spent about 700 years trying to get the new penguin out, you guys could have got tripped by the algorithm. That's right. That's right. And as a reference point, I don't think I mentioned it, like the site was making $10,000 a month when we were working on it. So, you know, not only was it a, a pain in the butt, but I mean, that's, (laughs) that's real money. That's a significant amount of cash on the line. Yeah, that must have been pretty stressful. Yeah, it wasn't great. Okay, so in the end, it turned out to be a bit of a, you know, I guess a false alarm. What happened after that? Did you just switch everything over to gray hat? Oh, sorry, (laughs) to white hat. And then and then it was all good? Or how does the story continue? Sure. So a couple things were happening. And I'll just sort of lay them all out. And we could dive into each one as we we go on sort of chronologically. But another thing was the site's content was just not that good. There were a couple issues with it. One, you know, the person that wrote it was a, you know, hired freelance writer. They really didn't have much background knowledge on like the topic. So the content just was not well written. It wasn't informed on the products. And that was definitely an issue impacting conversions. You know, when it comes down to it, we would actually see comments about 
like just having poor information in there. So that was one aspect of the content trouble. The other was it was, you know, a fairly small site, 45 posts or so. And, you know, we wanted to sell the site for, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's a certain amount of value to having, you know, a well-rounded site. We didn't have that and we knew it. So that was sort of like part one content was an issue. Interesting. So like, I totally get what you're saying and it makes sense. And I've had a site before where maybe I didn't research something and people let you know in the comments and it's a bit, yeah, it makes you realize, oh, I I should do a better job here. But at the same time, if the site's bringing in $10,000 a month, it's very easy to be like, I don't really care. This content's fine. You know? So that's, for all those people out there who think their content's not good enough to get conversions, well, it might not be good enough to get amazing conversions, but you can still make some money there. Yeah. It was very enlightening to see that, you know, poor content can actually work pretty well. You know, maybe people just, they wanted to get off the site and get over to Amazon as fast as possible, which, you know, that's kind of (laughs) what you want to happen. Yeah. They were like, this is terrible. I'm going to go see what Amazon has to say instead. And, you know, thinking about the, I guess, the importance of the authority site model where people have a higher value of, of higher perceived value, at least with like a larger site, even though it may not make a huge difference in the long run. And we definitely can see examples of sites that don't have many pages that are worth a lot and make a lot of money, but there is a perceived value for sure. And maybe real value in having, you know, more content on a site. So that, you know, other aspect was something that we needed to take care of just in general. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it depends on the niche as well. Like some niches, you just aren't going to cut it with a smaller 20, 40 page site and other niches, maybe you can get away with it. Right. Right. So that was, you know, issue number one. Issue number two was just the fact that we were, you know, trying to get a bunch of guest posts and I can share, you know, the actual real numbers of what we were trying to do. So there were about 45 private blog network backlinks going to the site. It's a pretty good number, you know, significant number of them. Additionally, There were, you know, I think a dozen or so Web 2.0 links, you know, from the Hoth specifically. And, you know, those Gray Hat links did a pretty good job, obviously, like getting the site to rank for a few very key terms. Now, our plan, right, was to just replace those links, the PBN links specifically with guest post links the white hat outreach that I was going to do. And we were just going to do a one for one. The hard part is there's not many case studies where people take a gray hat site, take those powerful PBN links and replace them with white hat guest posting links. And if people do it, they usually don't take the time to write a case study about it and tell you how they did it. So are you familiar with any other projects out there similar to it? No, <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I can't people, think of any. Most people just sell the site and don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, as well, like 
I guess I'm more familiar with taking a site and adding white hat links to it, but actually then removing the gray hat links as well is something that I don't think many people would do. Yeah. So, and that isn't one of the mistakes that I made, I don't think, but I will add our rationale for doing this. So when you sell a site, you get some valuation on it and it's normally based on a monthly multiple of the income, the profits for the site. And the monthly multiple is typically based on a variety of factors, the age of the site, how long it's been making that current level of money, if there's some seasonality, you know, any other external factors. And another is sort of the risk factor. And one of the risks that a broker or a purchaser can consider is the kind of backlinks the site has. And from the perspective of a buyer, if you have the choice, if you have the choice to buy a site that has private blog network links or just regular guest post links, natural links in general, most of the time a buyer is going to pick the white hat links. And because of that, our assumption was that we would get a higher multiple for the site when we were ready to sell it. That's why we did it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And especially when you've got a site that's earning 10,000, because the difference of like a 25 times and a 32 times multiple was a significant amount of money. Right. And we got a 33x multiple to, you know, go ahead and solve that mystery. We did get a 33x multiple, which was great. And, you know, the other factor, which, you know, later our friends at Empire Flippers let us know that if you have those white hat links, you can normally get more interested buyers looking and making offers for your site. And you'll usually get a more favorable type offer where there's more cash up front and that sort of thing versus some sort of seller finance type of a offer, which turns out you see quite a few of those because there's not many people that have you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash to make a purchase like that. Yeah, I've always wondered how that comes through at the higher end. I've only ever sold a site for five figures. So I always like, who are these people that have got like 200 grand to drop on a site? I imagine there, you know, a lot of them are investor group types, but, you know, there are individuals that are, you know, they made a lot of money on, you know, maybe their own sites and they, you know, see the value in, you know, maybe adding to their portfolio and they do have, you know, the cash ready to deploy like that. Yeah, that's definitely a case as well. So for everyone who's listening, we're going to resolve these issues or we're going to talk about how you resolved them in the next episode. So what other issues did you encounter? There was one other big issue, and this was probably the most stressful and most dramatic of of everything. So in February of 2017, we got wind that Amazon was probably going to be changing the commission rate structure. And we thought, hey, it's probably not going to be a really like great thing, but hopefully it won't be too bad. And eventually we did get the news and, you know, this is something that people already know. So in March, 
2017, Amazon changed the commission structure and basically uh, effectively lowered the commission structure for most people. This was, you know, really more of an impact for anyone that was already making money. So if you weren't yet involved in the, you know, Amazon affiliate niche site area, then, you know, it didn't really matter to you. It's just a different game that you're walking into. But if you are already in, it really was a significant hit overall. Yeah, I remember when that happened, there were some people that took a pretty big hit, like going from 11% or 10% down to, well, four in some cases. Right, right. And, you know, ours went from eight and a half to, you know, five and a half roughly. So, you know, pretty big hit, about 35% overall. Yeah. Okay. Well, obviously we're going to talk more about that in the next episode, but that must have been a pretty uh, depressing time. Did you think, oh, can we still sell the site now? Or like what kind of thoughts were going through your head at the time? Rob and I work pretty well together. We're very pragmatic about these type of issues that came up. And, you know, of course, this was a really tough one because, you know, overnight the value of the site went down. So, you know, we looked at the overall project, the overall impact and tried to figure out, you know, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to try and recover it? And, you know, how do we approach it? Like, you know, what actions are we going to take and how long might it take to recover you know, some of the earnings? Yeah, I think it's pretty important not to get too emotional about it. I mean, obviously, to some extent, it's impossible to shrug something like that off. But at the end of the day, Amazon made the decision and there wasn't really much we could do about it. I mean, I did see some people in other Facebook groups talking about trying to tweet Jeff Bezos and send emails saying, please don't take away our commissions. And I just kind of felt like, I don't know, like, I was just like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, the great thing about working online using, you know, Amazon affiliate niche sites is, you know, you have a lot of freedom in what you can do. It's very easy to get started. It's very uh, cheap to get started compared to other businesses that can scale in this way. But the reality is, you know, the SEO side, the Google side, we don't really control. We're at risk in that area. And on the other side, we don't control the affiliate program. So, you know, we're playing by certain rules and we have to respect those rules. And every industry is like that. I mean, if you're in the healthcare industry, some policy changes could, you know, make your job go away. If you work in, you know, banking, there's regulations you have to follow and, you know, any industry is like that. So we're not unique, but there are areas that you have to respect that you don't control. Yeah, that's very true. I've actually had on two occasions, I've had a website have its, the product that it was promoting removed. So, and they weren't like even shady products or anything, just for whatever reason, one of them, the vendor was like, oh, I'm doing another project and I can't have any other existing projects. So I'm just taking this one down. And that site was making me like $500 a month at the time. It was my first ever successful site. And like, you know, then the next day it's making nothing. And then I had another site where commissions went from like, I don't know, um, $27 to $3 because they had moved, they'd restructured stuff and I had to promote different products instead. 
And again, I was just kind of like, that sucks. But it's the game we play. And like in my mind, and I I blogged about it as soon as it happened, I felt like, well, that sucks. But I'm still going to build Amazon sites because in my opinion, they're still one of the best networks out there. Not going to make as much from the same amount of clicks as before, but just get more clicks or build more sites or something. Right, right. My wife told me yesterday that she heard it on the radio, so I assume it's true. Something like half of the money spent online is spent with Amazon. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it doesn't surprise me. Right. That's what I thought. I mean, even if it's not exactly true, like it's probably, it's within the realm where we'd believe it. So, and I will mention, I, I think I started, you know, talking about the guest posting area and Basically, we did run into some issues with the guest posting. We had to get like 45 guest posts and it was slower than we expected. And it sort of, you know, bled into the commission rate stuff. Because, I mean, technically, if we would have got all the guest posts that we needed very quickly, we potentially could have, you know, listed the site months earlier and avoided the commission rate change. So, you know, in hindsight, it looks like, oh man, like we could have sold the site sooner, but, you know, just the way things played out, we didn't have the opportunity to do it. And it cost us, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. And I don't know if you've thought of it either, but you probably would have got 27 or 28 X when it was gray hat. And then by waiting, you may have got a higher multiple, but less overall money so that you know (laughs) i just want to put that out there right yeah and it was interesting like if you looked at the earnings you know it was making about 10k a month when i joined and it had been for about three months or so and you know we're going to talk about the content later but i could tell you that the content work that i did helped a lot so the revenue went up by about 40 percent in about 45 days or so. And by December, the site made 32,000 plus in just in December. So like the content was critical for, you know, hitting those kind of numbers that fast. And then presumably by the time you sold it, it was still earning higher than it was when it was like before you did all that. Yes. Yes. Overall, in general, it was making more than it would have. So there were other factors involved too, which, you know, part of the uncertainty of, you know, converting a site is you don't really know what's like converting a site from gray hat to white hat. You don't know what's going to happen to the rankings and that sort of thing. And in general, right, just over time, the new competitors come in, some competitors go away. So there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of factors out there that we just don't control. Even if you have your own, you know, your very own private blog network, you still can't control the competitors out there. Yeah, that's very true. So I guess continuing on the guest post issue, one issue that I thought of straight away when you said you were trying to replace links one for one was, did you struggle to get white hat guest post links to like money pages. Like I assume you had PBN links built to money pages. That's true. Actually, we didn't have much trouble getting links to affiliate posts. And 
I guess normally I don't have much issue with that. So, you know, one thing to note is we made sure like any of the affiliate content that we were linking to was really good. We made sure it was, you know, some of the best content on the internet, on the topic. And, you know, the other part is I really tried to have good relationships with the bloggers that were publishing the guest post. And, you know, with that, they normally, you know, not a hundred percent of the time, but they normally would link to, you know, whatever posts we wanted them to. Okay. That sounds about right. So, you know, what other kind of issues were there? You mentioned that the link building took a lot longer than you expected. So did you have any kind of frustrations with the speed or the lack of progress or anything? Yeah. And that was the, that was the main thing. Like I basically hired a, it was a friend of mine who was also like a competitor in the guest posting service area that I was in for a little while. And I knew he needed clients and I had a lot of work that I needed help with. So you know, I was working with a person who, you know, generally had the same skills as me and it just, you know, wasn't going as well as it should have. It started really fast. I I think we got like the first 10 links within, you know, three, four weeks, something amazing. I was, was really impressed. And then it just got slower. And I think, you know, part of it is a symptom of the fact that, you know, guess people are trying to scale the guest posting system that worked, say, 18 months or two years ago. So they're, you know, sending out templates that you and I were using a couple of years ago, and they're sending them out now in mass, and they're sending them to hundreds of people and like hundreds of people per week. And it's saturating the internet. And I think, you know, the person that I hired that I was working with, he was using those same methods and like he failed, unfortunately, to adapt. So, I mean, one skill that I have in my corporate world, I had a team of like 15 people, right? I had one-on-one meetings with them. I coached them. I, you know, helped them solve problems and adapted when things didn't work. I helped them figure out how to solve problems. And you know, unfortunately, this person I was working with didn't adapt. You know, he wouldn't really take my feedback. He just, you know, would send out more emails, which, of course, you know, if you're <laughs> doing something that doesn't work and you just do it harder, then you just get more frustrated. And, you know, after some period of time, I realized that, you know, he wasn't adapting and growing like I needed him to. And he didn't have much interest in, you know, doing anything else. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's definitely the, it's the problem I've encountered when it comes to doing guest posting at scale. And to some extent, it's quite hard to teach somebody to do that. Like you can do it if it's your site and you're living in the niche. I do it with human proof designs. You do it with niche site project. But when you're trying to hire a VA, it's a lot easier to just say, send this email to 500 people and hope that you get three links than it is to say, do proper outreach as it works in its kind of purest form. Right, right. And I think, you know, the ability to adapt is really important for the kind of work that we do, where SEO changes fast. And, 
you know, we're racing against our competitors and we're also trying to work with the confines of, you know, the Google algorithm so that we don't, you know, go too far. We're trying to make sure that we don't, you know, over-optimize anchor text, like little stuff like that, like every detail matters and being able to adapt and like change when, you know, you try something and it doesn't work. Well, that's really important to do. Okay. So I'm assuming you managed to crack it in the end when you ended up adapting and you were able to figure it out. So I'm really looking forward to you sharing that in the next episode, I guess. Yeah. And I'll just make sure I covered everything. So number one, we had content that we were trying to figure out. We were trying to work with you know guest posting and how we were actually going to replace all these PBN links with guest post. And then finally, we had the commission rate change in March of 2017 by Amazon that we had to deal with as well. Yeah. So we've got those three main things. And I guess to some extent, there's the fact that you weren't even sure if it was going to work as well. And, you know, you've got this kind of feedback loop issue that everybody has with internet marketing. Yeah, it sounds a lot scarier now that we're talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, why didn't you just build white hat links and keep the gray hat links? Like the thought of removing a link is quite scary, even though I guess theoretically, even if the link was removed, you may not lose any rankings. It's quite a, when you're messing around with, $10,000 a month. That's quite a scary thing. Right. And then it got scarier when we actually, you know, we hit the 32K in December. It got very scary. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was probably quite exciting as well. But yeah, I know what you mean. Thanks again to Dom Wells. You should definitely check out his podcast, the Human Proof Podcast, and I'll put links and stuff in the show notes and description and all that. Before I get to the questions, of which there are fewer than I thought, I actually recorded the intro, then I hopped over to look at the Project White Hat blog post and saw that some of the questions were very specific to the blog post and therefore a little bit out of context, so there were only a handful that I'll be able to do. However, I do want to tell you about writing that blog series. Like I mentioned, it's about, I think it's like 12 or 13 parts, and I wanted to write it in a more thoughtful way than I have most of my other blog posts. What do I mean by that? At the time, I was watching Breaking Bad. My wife and I were like plowing through Breaking Bad, and it was like, I think it was a few years after it was off the air already, but we were obviously, you know, just catching up, really enjoying it. And one thing I noticed with Breaking Bad and a lot of other serialized uh, mini series like that, you have, say, maybe two or three or five conflicts that happen during an episode. Then, like, one or two of those issues or conflicts are resolved within that episode, and the rest are open. There's an open loop and you have to watch the next episode to get any sort of closure or conclusion. And guess what? In the next episode, three or four new conflicts are introduced and one or two are resolved. And you just have um, like a drive to watch the next episode, which is uh, totally makes sense. I mean, we want closure. We want some conclusion. So that is the mindset that I tried to have for this blog series, Project Go White Hat. And if you if you go and, and check it out, you go and read it, you'll see that I 
I introduced at the pretty much the beginning of most of the blog post, I introduced some, you know, set of issues that we were dealing with. And then I only resolved um, a few of them. Luckily, you know, I knew how the story was going to end. So that was the other part. A lot of times, I think internet marketers are very guilty of doing a case study, coming up with some concept or an idea. And we are writing the case study as we go. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know what um, the conclusion will be. And we don't know if it's going to be good or bad. The danger there is you could be leading a lot of people astray. So if I did a case study and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this, it's going to be fantastic. And then it doesn't work out. And like a few hundred people were following what I was doing and it didn't work out. I just kind of screwed over all those people. And by the way, that's exactly what happened to me a couple of times when I first started in my internet marketing journey. I was following some case studies that were written by people who were you know, doing it as they went and they would make a mistake and then hundreds of people would make that mistake and then they would have to, you know, dial it back and hopefully uh, lead the people in, a, in the right way. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have most of the story done before I started publishing anything. Now, I, I documented everything ahead of time. Rob and I kept like really good track of what was going on during the whole project, like who was doing what work, the number of guest posts that were landing, the ones that weren't landing, all that stuff. So by the time I started publishing anything, we were like four months in. And by the time, I'm trying to remember the exact like publishing schedule, but I tried to really um, like ramp it up and sort of like launch the blog series versus just sending out uh, a blog post and uh, hoping people were going to check it out. I was like, all right, I'm going to release two of them. I'm going to have, you know, a few events around it. So I did some live webinars where I was talking about some of the material as well. So I really, I tried to do a good job like repurposing um, the blog post, the work that I was doing there, and then putting it into YouTube videos, putting it into webinars, just over and over again. I tried to use that same material again, tell it in different formats. People like to consume information in different ways. That's why I'm doing the podcast, right? So anyway, it was really fun writing that series because I knew how it was going to end. I had my full, actually, I remember sketching this out. I had my full story arc and then I was like, okay, let's divide these conflicts up and have um, just different different areas that I cover and it doesn't have to be 100% linear uh, as far as the timeline goes. I could sort of jump ahead or pull certain pieces forward or back depending on you know where I was in telling the story. So do have a look if you're interested in seeing um, like how I put that together. And you can see a lot of people actually left comments to that effect where they were really excited to see what was going to happen next because I left people hanging. Okay, let's get over to the questions. This one was left by Ilya and I'm just going to read it out or do my best to read out loud. So uh, bear with me. It says, Hey Doug, thanks for the great update. Are you going to go over how the guest post affected the rankings and how the rankings changed if they did at all once the PBN private blog network links were removed? And uh, Illy also says, it's really funny. This post just came as my VA finished web 2.0 uh, backlinks and moving on to guest post as a means of getting backlinks. So 
Ilya is saying, now I can steal your system and outrank you. And by the way, that was another part that I, I did as I was writing these, uh, the blog post in the series for Project O White Hat. I said, we're doing a white hat guest posting campaign. Here are the emails we're sending out. Here's the system we're doing. So further, Ilya says, when you say that you worked for about 15 hours per week, is that you and the two outreach assistants combined? If so, that's ridiculously impressive um, for the number of guest posts, which I think we got, um, if I'm just remembering off the top of my head, something like you know 25 or 30 guest posts in uh, something like six weeks, something like that. Okay. So those are the main things that Ilya was asking about. And in first, he was asking about how the rankings were impacted by removing the PBN links and by adding the guest post. I believe at the time that we were working on the site, backlinks seemed to take a little while to provide their impact, their improvement in rankings. And I think that's continued, by the way. It takes a little while for backlinks to to work. So we didn't really see a huge bump in the in the short term with all those backlinks. I think we saw a bigger improvement when we added content. We added a lot of KGR posts, about 90 of them, if I remember right. We also improved um, content on a handful of the high traffic pages. So we got even more traffic from that. Over time, I think some of the uh, the rankings did improve because of the guest post. At the same time, you know, we were removing the PBN links, so I think uh, we we really staggered it. We knew it could be an issue, so we waited to remove PBN links and to do. We planned on doing it in a very slow, methodical way, so we didn't see any major impact to rankings by getting a lot of guest posts or by adding the PBN links. Like I said, it seemed to be mostly around the content improvement that we did. Now, looking back, I would say I would probably either leave some portion of the PBN links or maybe even, um, you know, on the other side of the coin, I would like double the number of guest posts that I got just to make sure that it was really going to replace the uh, PBN links that we had pointing to the site. The other part of the question was around how much time myself and the VAs were spending on doing, you know, outreach and getting the guest post and all that stuff. So yeah, it was about 15 hours a week between all of us. Basically, it was through very high touch outreach. So we spent a lot of time like nurturing the relationships before we asked for a guest post. And I think that really works well. In fact, it's the system that we use in five figure niche site and this project go is when I actually, you know, tested it out. And, you know, initially when, when, uh, the first like guest posting outreach assistant was working with me, basically we were doing like a little bit lower touch. We're sending out a lot more emails and I was like, all right, we have to do something different. Um, and that's when I pulled in my other, you know, my writers, basically I promoted my writers to be outreach assistants. And at that point I was like, all right, let's flip this on its head. Let's do the, do something different. And the major difference was really spending that time nurturing the relationship versus just asking for a guest post. So that worked out really well. And what happens is it takes a lot of time up front. So I think if I, if I remember right, it was like three or four weeks. We basically got 
no guest posts. It was three or four weeks of ramp up period while we were building all the relationships. And then in the last few weeks, we got most of the backlinks like really quickly because we put in all that time up front. Now, you can imagine, right? So I'm working some time, I'm paying some people for about a month and we're getting no results back. But I had faith that it was actually going to pan out, which it did. And it, it worked better than if we would have done, you know, the other route. We could have gotten some backlinks that first week, but I don't think we would have gotten as many or as high quality um, in the same amount of time. Next question is from Brad. Brad says, to what extent is an email list uh, an asset? Does having a good email list associated with your site increase its value? So that's a hard one to answer um, until we started to research it a little bit. So in general, there may be a little bit of value to you know having the email list. However, there are many factors that come into play there. So the number one factor is if you're using the email list to sell in some way, it will increase the revenue and hopefully increase the profits as well. And at that point, it's very clear. It's it's hitting the bottom line. The email list is generating money and it's very clear that there's value there. And it's almost directly tied to the amount of profit that it's providing. So that is like the baseline. And I would say, you know, without being a person who is a website broker or anything, I think it's probably like 90, 95% of the, you know, value of an email list is around how much profit it's bringing. So, and let me give you the, a couple other factors. So how often are you sending emails? What's the open rate? Are people engaged or not? So if you have an email list of say, a hundred thousand people, which is a lot, right? So if you have an email list of a hundred thousand people, but your open rates are like, you know, point two percent and you don't really send out many emails it's not really valuable at all and based on the metrics that i just made up there you can imagine that there's not much profit coming directly from the email list so not much value there it's just a list that is basically worthless however let's say you have an email list of two thousand people much smaller much much smaller and it's very engaged you have a 50 percent open rate you're making, uh, you know, very clearly, you can see that you're selling some affiliate products through your email list and you're able to, you know, see that you're bringing in, uh, you know, an extra thousand dollars a month or something. At that point, well, that's, that's pretty valuable. That is worth the thousand dollars, um, per month, of course. And then if someone happens to be, an email specialist, they may see it as even more valuable. They may be thinking, well, I can grow that email list even bigger. And even if it uh, doesn't hold up to the same profit level per subscriber, it can still be very valuable. So overall, just to sort of tie it in a bow here, my answer to Brad is an email list is valuable when it contributes to the bottom line. If it doesn't contribute to the bottom line, then it doesn't, it doesn't really matter all that much. All right. If you heard uh, some barking in the background, that was my wife sending me a text message and uh, sometimes that bleeds through from uh, my pocket. So sorry about that. Moving on to the last question for today. This is from James. James says this, I know the guys at Empire Flippers said that having a white hat site improves the value, 
But if you keep the PBN links in place and the earnings were at previous levels, what would the valuation be? I would have thought that you would have gotten a slightly smaller multiple, but a higher overall sale price. So this is a really good point from James. And I think it's really impossible to answer that since like we did a certain thing and they're usually for any site, even if we had the data, we would, we would not know all the variables in play. So. The other, you know, this has been a couple years ago, right? So at this point, I'm a little bit further away from it and I have a little bit more perspective, uh, much more perspective than when I was in the trenches doing this stuff, um, you know, day in and day out and waiting for the offers and all that stuff. But I would say if we would have kept the PBN links or at least a portion of them, we potentially... Maybe I'm just speculating here. We maybe would have had higher rankings, more traffic, and thus a higher, you know, profit level each month. And maybe like the slightly smaller multiple wouldn't have been an issue at all because we maybe were would have been making more money. And there were a few people that made that point, whereas it was just like, hey, why don't we go ahead and uh, just keep those links and see how see how we can do. And there's just multiple schools of thought. I mean, some people are just very, very, they're like religious about like using PBNs or not using PBNs. Some people, you know, look at it as a game and other folks, you know, have, you know, another, another perspective on it. No one's necessarily right or wrong. It's just the rules of the game that we're all playing. And some people, you know, they're, they're using uh, some flexible rules and some other folks are trying to follow the rules exactly as Google lays out in the webmaster guidelines. So this is a great question. I don't know the answer to it, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, at the end of today, now that I have the perspective, like I said, I maybe would have thought, hey, why don't we keep um, some percentage of the PBN links in place, blah, blah, blah. So, and the other part of it is, Rob and I looked at this project as we want to accomplish this. We want to sell it and we want to see what happens. I was obviously documenting it a lot on my end. And for Rob, he hadn't at the time sold a big site like that. I hadn't either. So it was like a learning experience to go through. And we we viewed it that way. We viewed it as a learning experience and a project that we wanted to execute. And we had contingencies uh built in. We talked about many different scenarios before we even started. We talked about, you know, what would happen if, and we just made up outlandish sort of scenarios so that we could think through things like what would happen. And it was a very valuable exercise because we got to understand, you know, what was important to each other. And we were, I mean, thank goodness, we were pretty much on the same page, um, like all the way through the project. There were a couple of times where we started to do, you know, some activity and then realized that we shouldn't mess with, you know, email marketing, for example, we should probably just focus on getting the guest post or whatever the, you know, main activity was at the time. And and generally it was getting those guest posts. All right, be sure to check out the next episode, part two of Project Go White Hat. Again, Dom Wells from Human Proof Designs interviewed me, and that is coming out for the next episode. Thanks a lot. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe 
listen to a few more episodes, see if you're into it, but subscribe. That'll be awesome. And I highly encourage you to leave a review on iTunes or whatever you listen to podcasts on. Leave a review, tell your friends about it, share it on Facebook or something. Hopefully this uh, you know story was engaging for you and there's more to come.